All right, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Future Ear Radio Podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Tish Gaffney. So, Tish, thanks so much for being on the podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. But wanted to have you on. Um, you know, you are heading into 2024. You'll be the president of the uh, American Academy of Audiology. Um, you know, you're a professor at Nova Southeastern in Florida. Uh, you got a lot of different um, titles and and things that you're focused on right now. But I wanted to go back to the start, like I do with most of my guests on the podcast, to just kind of get a sense of like, how did you come into this space and more or less discuss how you got to where you are now? So let's go back to the start. Sure. So, um, so I had always loved science and healthcare and I knew I always wanted to do something in healthcare. You know, I thought maybe doctor, I thought, you know, all these different things you do when you're in, you know, high school and those early years of college. And um, I really discovered audiology from my uncle, who was an ear, nose and throat physician. And um, during the summers, I kind of go down to his office in Delaware. Uh, I'm from Philly originally, um, the suburbs of Philly. And so I would go down to Delaware and kind of help out like filing and stuff like that. But his audiologist would let me observe her. And it was really a great opportunity to kind of see how ENT function as a physician versus how the audiologist gets to function and have that more interaction and personal care with their patients compared to that, you know, more fast paced physician um, approach. And so, um, you know, when I was in college, I um, I decided to do speech and hearing sciences. I was doing my undergraduate at uh, the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And um, then I went to the University of Pittsburgh for graduate school. And when I entered into grad school, it was kind of in that transition period where there were some AUD programs, um, some of the early ones. Most of them were still masters. Uh, my undergraduate advisor was like, yeah, we're not sure if the AUD is going to work out. So don't apply only AUD. Apply half and half. And I was like, okay. And um, I ended up getting into the University of Pittsburgh, which is a great school. And at that time, it was still a master's program. It wasn't an AUD yet. And uh, I decided to go. It would have been in-state for me. Um, you know, so it was a great opportunity to go to a great school. And uh, my first year there, they're like, we're going to transition to the AED. And I was like, well, this is great because I kind of wanted to do the AED anyway. And so this was a great opportunity. And um, so I learned a lot at University of Pittsburgh. And I, you know, have a great relationship with a lot of the faculty who taught me then. Um, I ended up doing my uh, externship at the VA hospital in Miami. So that moved me down to Florida for my externship. And um I graduated, they offered me a job and I stayed there for a couple of years. And then right up the road here in Fort Lauderdale, uh, Nova had a position open and, and I decided to apply. It was two years after I graduated. So I graduated in 2005 and I ended up starting here in 2007. And so being very young <laughs> and new to the profession, stepping into a faculty position was um interesting and definitely a learning curve you know from being that student to now being that faculty member um but i thought you know my interest has always been vestibular and so i thought that i could really you know lean into that in this in this you know role at this university um and so it's been great i've been here 16 years still here and um i have had the luxury of um, you know, being able to build our vestibular program here. Um, and we could talk about that later. But kind of in tandem to that, I was always interested in the professional side of things too. And so when I was um, in, in school at Pitt, uh, my first conference was the Philadelphia Conference, which was great for me. I My first year as an AUD student, I got to go home to a conference. And that's when I learned about uh, NACDA, which is the National Association of Future Doctors of Audiology. And that was an organization that was specifically designed to help promote the AUD because it still was in that transition period. And so my classmate and I brought it back to Pitt and we started our NAFTA chapter there, which put me on the national, uh, the national representative for Pitt on the national board for NAFTA. And from there, like my professional kind of career took off too, just getting to know tons of people and 
um, you know, then rolling it to an executive position. And then I have basically volunteered the whole rest of my career um, for various committees and organizations. So it's kind of had these two things between the, the you know, my day-to-day job, but also my volunteer life has kind of really stemmed from that, that University of Pittsburgh experience kind of in both it's um, interesting that, you know, like we've I've had this conversation a few different times on on the podcast about this like whole period um, when it was kind of the Wild West, when it was transitioning from the master's degree to the doctoral. And like, uh, I just think that's such an interesting wrinkle um, for a lot of people that are in this profession is like um, whether they started before the transition existed. And so they're all like master's degree and some of them you know, like uh, afterward, they went and they got their doctoral. Others, you know, they didn't have an option. Really, the AUD was the only one that exists. But I just find this to be, it's part of the like whole story of what is still kind of a nascent profession, I think. Um, And I think it's interesting that like we're kind of at this crossroads in many ways um, as an industry. And I think audiology is um, in particular is kind of identifying like what is the role into the future um, given some of these like changes that are happening, uh, some of these different external pressures and all that. Um, but I, you know, so that's one thought that I have based on what you said, but the other is like this, this pattern that is now very visible, I guess, from, from the guests that I've had on the podcast, um, that have really sort of like leapfrogged in their career by putting themselves out there, getting involved in whatever way they can. And it's obviously like, dependent upon the circumstances of, of when these opportunities present themselves. Like you said, you know, you kind of had this opportunity come about that was for like young professionals that were to more or less represent the new doctoral level degree. Um, whereas today, you know, those might take different shapes. But I think that the the kind of the pattern is that if you're willing to do these kinds of go above and beyond just the norm, um, it seems like there's almost undeniably going to be some positive sort of like secondary order effects that come from that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, my involvement in NAFTA, which, you know, for some of the young people, they don't even know that that existed. And, you know, that's now basically what SAA has become uh, due to some agreements that were, that took place many years ago at this point. Um, But yeah, that was, that was truly the catalyst for so much of what I've done. And actually, you know, even just getting my job here, it was super helpful. So, um, you know, when I was a student on the NAFTA board, you know, I got to, so the way that NAFTA functioned, which is a little different than how SAA functions, was that because there were so few AUD programs, every AUD program had a board member. And so you were the national representative for your chapter, for your school. And we all met. And so, you know, I, I just found actually the the one year, two, both years I was on the NAFTA board, um, I was in charge of the conference, either on the conference committee or um, as the secretary, the conference fell underneath it. And NAFTA had its own conference um, the day before AAA. And I was, I, I was, I just moved. And so I was going through like an old piece of luggage that I had and I pulled out and there was the room list because we, we paid for the rooms yep. and we put four students in a room. And um, I found a roulette and I was going through it and I was like the number of people who were involved at that time who are now really successful either, you know, through their state academies, through their professional organizations, um, industry, like there's so many people on that that, you know, have done so much with their career. And it really started with doing stuff at that student level. And, you know, if you if you kind of get into that mindset that you want to be involved, you want to give back to your profession because you don't get paid anything, right? And so right. it is your client that you're paying um, to, to participate. You do get back to having really enriching experiences with colleagues from around the country. I can pretty much go to any city and know somebody there from really cool. all of the time that I've been on, you know, involved in my profession. And so it's really, I, I mean, it has really... That has been such an an important part of my journey, of uh, you know, starting at that 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 point in in my you know student years of really being engaged in, you know, knowing people and things like that. And you know, at heart, I'm really an introvert, 
So for those introverted people out there, like <laughs> I am truly like at heart an introvert. How, however, because I've made so many friends in audiology, I've, I've been able to, so people don't realize that. And they're like, oh, you're so extroverted. How would you be? <laughs> but, but you know, like audiology is like my home and they're all my friends. And so it, it's become really easy to, you know, kind of blossom in that way um, throughout my career from, you know, my 20s up until, until now. Yeah, I mean, I again, I just think that's, it's really important to, because like to your point, you don't get paid. So it's not um, like you get like these super tangible direct benefits. But to your point, you know, you sort of reflect back. And I think many people can sort of, um, you know, they, they can relate to this because they've had similar things happen in their life, which is, you know, again, just a testament of like, just do more, um, especially when you're just getting started out, because I think it it's just going to lend itself to you like, you know, putting, giving yourself more opportunities for like serendipity to happen, for luck to happen, for you to kind of meet that right person that is going to be, um, you know, some sort of colleague in some capacity down the line. You, you don't ever really know what's going to happen. Um, so like, I guess to just real quickly going off a tangent with this, as a professor, as somebody that works with a lot of young people, and then as the president of AAA, what would you say to people that are, you know, kind of young now, like what what kind, like what are some of the specific ways that you can get more involved? Um, I know, you know, you can join your SAA chapter and all that, the student academies. Um, but like, is there anything that comes to mind in terms of ways that you think you as a young person could like set yourself up to be successful by kind of like going out and about and doing things that are maybe not as... Um, cut and dry is just following your curriculum. Yeah, you know, volunteering for, you know, SAA is a fantastic way to start. Um, but there's other organizations out there too. And, um, you know, I, I've had several students who have become board representatives to the American Balance Society. So they're getting leadership from, from that role. Um, once you graduate, you know, those first couple of years, you know, volunteering either at your seed academies, your, you know, national, you know, professional organizations like AAA, ASHA, ADA, or more specialty ones like Balance Society, or if you're a VA, you know, employee of the VA audiology group, or, you know, so there's so many, there's so many organizations, which is a, is a give and take in the profession, right? Sometimes it's a great thing. Sometimes it's not. But, you know, when you volunteer and you show up and you participate and do the work, when they're looking for people to do the next thing, they say, oh, so-and-so is really great on this committee. We should ask them to be part of this. And that's really what happens. And I've seen that snowball, especially within AAA, because I've been so involved in that organization for so long. Um, you absolutely see that happen. You know, people who show up participate in the meetings, um, you know, and most most committees are not overbearing amounts of work. You know, there are monthly meetings, maybe some work in between. Um, but when you when you really participate and not just sign up and sit there, when you actually mm -hmm. participate, people remember that. And people say, you know, and I, I, I was just literally talking to one of my friends and she's like, do you know so-and-so because they're on this committee and I think they were on one of your committees before and they're doing such a great job. Like they would really be good in a board position or they'd be really good as a committee chair. And so that's how that snowballs into these higher level, you know, positions. I mean, there was periods of time where I was on like five committees at once, um, you know, and some are more amounts of work, some are less, um, you know, and, you know, that's how you kind of build this is, you know, when people ask you, you say yes, and you you put your you put effort into it, um, and it it definitely pays off for sure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, so you know, thinking about your trajectory, so you um, you get your AUD. You know, you're kind of one of the first generation of the new doctoral level graduates, and then you go and you join um, down at Nova. What was that like? You had said that it was like you kind of almost were maybe thrust into uh, the lion's den or something like that. Um, it sounds like you were put out outside of your comfort zone, which is another kind of you know testament of of personal growth. Is 
you know, being uncomfortable as to kind of grow your comfort zone. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that, if you know, being a faculty member is an interesting position because you play so many roles in it. And it's not just the teaching, you know, there's other responsibilities too. But if we look at this, you know, so I, I became a faculty member at, I think, you know, 27, 28 and around there. And I was only two years out of school. My students were my same age, you know, like they were, you know, a couple years younger than me. So having having to to create an authority type role, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but, you know, in a way that you're in charge of your classroom and you're in charge of this homework, but also being so close in age actually is it, it, it's a little bit of a struggle because. You're like, oh, these are my these are my peers because they're so young and they're doing the same things that you're doing because you're so young. Um, but then ha- having to, you know, create this this academic persona in order to, you know, effectively lead them as their faculty member. And um, yeah, it took some it took some learning to to kind of develop that. I, I've always had the same philosophy the entire time I've been here is that um, I'm very clinician forward. So, you know, what is it that clinicians need to know when they go out in the world? This is an AUD. This is a clinical doctorate. What do clinicians really need to know when they go out into the world as a clinician? Um, The other thing is that, and this is something I get consistently on teaching about and things like that, is tough but fair. So, you know, I have a standard of where I expect performance to be. Here's what I've taught you. Here's the tools I've given you. I expect the student to put in their work, um, you know, studying and learning the material. Here's where the bar is. Um, I expect you to hit that bar. But it's also fair. I don't like pulling obscure things like pretty much every exam question. I can pull exactly from the slides where it is because it's not meant to be tricky. I'm not trying to trick people. I don't want to you know, sabotage students. But, you know, I think they're, you know, I feel like there has to be a bar that we're attaining to this. So, you know, and and creating that and 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 defining that over time is something that that took some some time to really establish. Um, but, I, you know, I I love what I do. I love teaching students and being able to see those aha moments when a student finally gets it or they finally understand how those pieces fit together. Um, I love in the, being in the classroom with them. And that was something that took some time to learn too, is that you're a student and maybe do a 15 minute presentation. Well, now here you're expected to teach three hours at a time <laughs> and build all that material from scratch. And, you know, that's, that, that takes, you know, it takes refinement to, to also be able to teach effectively too. So yeah, that, that journey, as far as a faculty member, you know, took time to, finesse um i think i've gotten into a place where i I, i'm good with it i you know this year i was awarded the AAA outstanding educator award i was nominated by two other faculty members and they had you know some of our former students also write supporting letters and you know i i look at where my students have gone and what they've done and that's always the testament to how good you are is is you know what the product that you produce and your product is is in this case is a student yeah, I've met a few Nova Southeastern students oh, yeah? over the years, <laughs> and I can agree uh, to that. Um, yeah, some very impressive graduates that are doing really impressive work already in their young careers. Um, but I was going to ask you, I uh, first off, congrats on winning that award. That's, oh, thank that's you. really cool, and, and that's that's got to be extremely gratifying. Um, so as somebody that's kind of been teaching... Um, you're kind of on the front lines of seeing, you know, like whatever kinds of trends I think are developing within the younger population, the, the future generations of the providers, you know, some of which are, you know, kind of maybe well-established in their careers now. But my point is, is that I feel like you maybe more than anyone would be kind of seeing where you think people are, are like where the like workforce is trending toward. What changes are you noticing with recent grads today and students today that you're seeing um, that might be different than say a few years ago or 10 years ago, you know, what's the, what, what, what are some of those like market changes that you feel are, are noticeably different? I think that, um, 
So I, there's a bias towards what I think as far as like within my specialty. And then there's kind of an overall, I think that, um, I think that there has been some disruption to, you know, the audiology marketplace, right? And there's all these concerns about various, you know, ways in. And I've seen students take more innovative approaches to how they're providing care or their business models. Um, and I think that that's going to continue to change. I think people are going to start thinking outside the box, box than the traditional, you know, I'm going to go work for an ENT. I'm going to go work in a hospital. There's been... Um, you know, definitely some differences in in how people are, you know, kind of going out there into into the world. Um, you know, within my area of expertise, which is vestibular, there there's absolutely been a change in, you know, the acceptance. I don't want to say acceptance. Um, kind of how involved people are in vestibular since when I was a student to now, and you know. When I was a student, there was very few people who did vestibular um, and who did it, you know, well. And that was their expertise. Uh, um, you know, there, there was vestibular been around, right? And, you know, people were doing it. But I think this true interest in vestibular has really changed quite a bit. Uh, when I was in school, nobody talked about pediatric vestibular at all. Like it, it pretty much didn't exist. Yeah. And so watching that develop over time has been really interesting um, all of the new technology, like when I was in school, the VEMPs didn't exist. Actually, they were just starting to be talked about. Um, a lot of the early VEMP literature was in the early 2000s, right when I was in school. But, you know, that was really C-VEMP and then O-VEMP didn't exist, V-HIP didn't exist. So, you know, watching that develop has been really interesting. And, you know, students being interested in that has changed. Um, you know, when, like I said, when I was a student, nobody really nobody really talked about vestibular that much. It was kind of this very specialized thing. It was part of somebody's course. It didn't have its own curriculum to, to a large extent. And, you know, now when I go to AAA, I, I presented vestibular grand rounds. I think it was not this past year, but the year. The same Lewis one. Yeah. And I asked that room, you know, there's 200 and something people in there. How many of you guys are students? And I'd say 80% of the room raised their hand. And that interest has really grown. I, I, I have students I know you've talked to um, with like Liz Femler and mm -hmm. Romero and they have their Dizzy podcast. And I have students who come to me and they're like, so I was watching the Dizzy podcast and they were talking <laughs> about this and they were talking about rotary chair and have a rotary chair. And, they, and it, it, it fuels their excitement for that. Um, and part of that is also, you know, who's teaching it, right? So if you have somebody who's interested in vestibular, it's easy to generate more of that interest. Um, but that is one thing that has absolutely changed over time, for sure. That's is extremely that interesting. Uh, um, oh, well, I mean, first off, um, <clears throat> shout out to Daniel and Liz. I love yeah. a Dose of Dizzy podcast. They're, uh, they do a great job. And I think that one of the things we talked about was like, you know, when you have like something that you're uh, podcasting about or creating content that's very, very niche, um, there's not a huge addressable market per se, but the market that does exist is extremely hungry for more content because there's so little content that is that specific, um, <clears throat> which I think is just kind of an interesting, you know, like trend to, to be observing in general. But, you know, with regard to the whole explosion and it kind of feels like that in terms of the interest around vestibular what i'm kind of curious about because i've i heard the same thing after that st louis um triple a was that the grand rounds for the vestibular uh the vestibular ground grand rounds was very well attended and it was dominated by young people and i'm curious of like why that is um and you kind of got to i think part of it which is you know i think there's maybe more uh the the science in the field of of that has has matured more the technology has gotten better so you know diagnosing and treating um, vestibular symptoms might be just naturally getting better uh, again this is kind of a nascent profession and um so and that's i think an even more nascent subset of the profession is even though it's been around to your point it's really only recently it feels like garnered the same level of interest as like the outer ear disorders or the middle ear disorders. Um, and so I, I, I find that really interesting. But I know another area that you're very, um, 
you know, well-read and, and researched and, and you do a lot of presentations on is around student debt. And I'm wondering if there is a correlation there. Um, basically, are do you think that students are sort of reading the writing on the wall and saying that the viability and sustainability of just being a, um, you know, call it an audiologist that fits hearing aids primarily, uh, is that sort of a risky endeavor to assume a whole bunch of debt and risk, um, whereas maybe it's safer to really become a full-blown clinician um, that is a medical professional that has more sustainability around a differentiated skill set like the vestibular um, diagnostics and treatments that are going to be maybe harder to disrupt. That's my own sort of sense, but I'm curious to get your take on this is is there maybe an element um, of that as to why you're seeing this huge uptick in, you know, the interest around vestibular? I I think that that could definitely be the case. So I, you know, the entire time I've worked here, I've also taught amplification classes, which I I always talk about like these two very different subjects. Right. And, you know, when I teach AMP 1, you know, especially AMP 1, um, where they're first coming in and, you know, people see, you know, the, you know, the issues about OTC hearing needs. And, and that was a concern even before, you know, they came out last year. Like, that has been a concern for a while. We're still right. like, are we going to have jobs? And I'm like, you will absolutely have a job. You, you know, regardless of what happens with hearing aids, you will absolutely have a job because, you know, anything that's avail available over the counter is not going to fix everybody's needs. And, you know, and even if you don't go that route and you want to go the diagnostic route, that's really where we get paid is on our diagnostics. And so, you know, I think that, I think that also, you know, there, there's this financial component, but I also think there's this, you know, sophistication component is that, you know, you're spending more time and energy and financial, you know, resources to become a doctor of audiology. And how do you raise that bar of what you are as a professional and what can you do that is, you know, high level? And, you know, I, I think that and I would hope that that's really, you know, a driving force is that people want to do gold standard care. And we know that that doesn't happen across the board, but that should always be the goal. And I think that vestibular is an opportunity to address some of these high level things uh, in a way that isn't the same as, you know, just doing hearing tests and doing repeated hearing tests over time. Um, you know, I always address, you know, vestibular in, you know, my intro vestibular class, like day one. If you like puzzles and you're the type of person that likes to put pieces together, then you will love vestibular because that's what you're doing is that you're taking all these pieces and putting it together. And I think that that's one place where vestibular really shines in that that kind of complex synthesis um, aspect where you're putting a lot of pieces together. Um, and and audiology is super important for that. I know Devin McCaslin had done some research when he was still at Mayo um, looking at their AI system, their um, AI triaging and, you know, having audiology at the start of the vestibular path was really important in triaging patients effectively um, because, you know, patients going to ENT if they're a migrant or ENTs don't want to see them. So, you know, audiology really does have a great place in this in this model of vestibular. And I also think the other thing that's helping with vestibular is that there's more of people like me out there at other universities. You know, right. back in the day, there weren't that many. And so, you know, vestibular was either being taught by somebody adjunct or they were being taught by maybe the electrophys person, maybe the low man on the totem pole who was like, you don't want to teach this. You're new. That's the course you teach. Um, and that, you know, and that absolutely has an impact. But now, oh, I, you know, I think about who's teaching at other universities and there's more and more people who are truly interested in vestibular teaching at other universities and imparting that that love for it. You know, if somebody's teaching it really dry and, and Vestib is not easy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that it's like, well, it could be this, but you have to look at this component, but it could be that. And so 
if you don't have somebody who's really good explaining it, then it just seems a bunch of gibberish and, you know, it's not as effective. So the more of us that are out there that are like, look, here's how you put it together. Here's why it's so important. I think also drives that. So I think there's a number of factors that are really playing into it. And I also think there has been an uptick in some of the accreditation requirements to teach it. So that also helps. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I agree with that. It's probably multiple factors that are influencing the, you know, sort of the like gravitational shift that in that direction. I just think about sort of, you know, the existing marketplace. Um, you know, the number one thing that I hear whenever I talk to owners of private practices um, or really like anybody that's in any kind of capacity where they need to hire people, that's like their number one challenge these days is, how do you find good talent? And so there's a lot of like really interesting innovation happening around upskilling, you know, front office assistants and stuff like that to be audiology assistants and all. Um, but I think that, you know, that's that's one thing. Um, I think where I'm going with this is that, again, if I'm kind of putting myself in the shoes of somebody that's just entering into the workforce or is considering going into this workforce, is that there's a lot of there's a lot of existing practices that probably really wish they had some sort of vestibular offering so not only are you in demand because there's sort of a labor shortage but if you can have specialty expertise um you know not necessarily just vestibular it could be with tinnitus it could be with you know apd like whatever you choose to sort of specialize in i think there's just a lot of value in that if if you you know, want to kind of like join an existing practice or something like that and, you know, kind of work your way up to maybe where you want to own your own thing or do your own thing, be your own boss, whatever. But I just think that it's, um, it's, it's a, if you're already going to be kind of incurring the debt, I think that it makes a lot of sense to think about your, you know, sort of your value in the marketplace when you enter and how can you increase that value? And if you look at it from the perspective of what is there a shortage of, there's A, a shortage of labor, but more importantly, a shortage of the specialty type labor that you would need as a practice owner. And that's where I think that this could be kind of a saving grace for a lot of the um, existing practices that are are sort of facing this, uh, whether it's like managed care or whatever it is, these different things that are kind of eating into their their bottom line. Um, I just feel that this macro trend of diversification into ancillary uh, services and offerings has been something that's been a big focal point of discussion within the industry for a while, but it feels more tangible and real than ever, especially when you kind of see how the young professionals seem to almost be realizing this writ large. I agree. And and I agree with you that any specialty, whether, you know, tinnitus and NAPD are really interesting because, you know, there is such a need for it. Um, and the the advantage to it is that you need very little, if no extra equipment than you already have. You know, that's one place where vestibular is a little cumbersome right. the amount of equipment. You know, if you want a really high tech vestibular lab, that can cost quite a lot. Um, you know, and I don't think you need every piece of equipment that's out there either. And that could be a whole other subject. But, you know, I think that, you know, those other, yeah, I definitely think, you know, having a specialty and that's not saying that you're not going to do anything else, but, you know, having those extra skills does make you very marketable to, um, you know, to other businesses. And, you know, even things like we're seeing like, you know, this, this increasing talk about like pediatric tinnitus and misophonia and hyperacusis and that i think that'll go through the same explosion like vestib pediatric did uh, because you're starting to hear the small discussions mm -hmm. about it and it's one thing that hasn't really been addressed um so yeah i think that having these these specialized you know talents uh is 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 beneficial to placing yourself in a more you know financially better position you know in a role or you know giving yourself a new opportunity to um really expand things and the more you have that expertise the more you can expand upon it either through presentations through um you know consulting um you know where you can get independent financial gains from consulting issues um gigs 
uh, you know, or or jobs where where you want them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've seen it, um, and I think that you know, again, it's kind of the same thing as the putting yourself out there, volunteering, advocating, um, and just getting involved. It's it's similar where as soon as you sort of start to develop these skills that are in such high demand, um, word gets round and, and you find yourself having more opportunities than maybe you thought initially. So again, it's not to say like you're, to your point, it's not like it's going to be your only focus. I just think that you recognizing that that's something that there's true market demand for is, is I think a helpful remedy to the fact that you're probably as a young person today, given today's realities, you're taking on a lot of debt. So you need to be really conscious of like, how are you going to kind of work through that? Um, and I, and again, for me, I just see that as being something that feels kind of like, uh, you know, a, a safe position is go and get that specialty experience. Um, so with the pediatric vestibular side of things, I found this to be really interesting. I was at the Missouri Academy of Audiology meeting and I can't remember who the speaker was. I was actually sitting next to Liz, who was kind of giving me like a, you know, tell it to me like I'm 10, uh, kind of cliff notes version of, of what was being presented on. But like my main takeaway was kind of to your point, um, that is only getting started with with what is being discovered. I think they were citing a study that was being done somewhere in Northern Europe um, where they were talking about, you know, some of the different pediatric procedures from a diagnostic standpoint that they were doing um, around, you know, some of these newborn screenings more or less uh, for for pediatric vestibular diagnostics. So can you just kind of shed a little bit of light on what's happening in that space and why it's exciting? Yeah. So I, I, what I'm guessing is that was they were probably talking about the Flander study that's happening over in Europe. Um, so they were looking at newborns who failed their newborn hearing screenings and they were following up with them. Uh, to establish, you know, um, vestibular function because there's a very high correlation between, um, you know, uh, newborn hearing loss, sensory normal hearing loss, and, you know, the presence of vestibular disorders. And so, you know, they created basically a protocol um, looking at these newborns who failed their newborn screening. Um, and they, they're, they're finding these, these early... Uh, vestibular losses by doing exempt with them and the, the I would love to to um, implement this too because uh, and I and we, we talked about this um, the American Balance Society has uh, uh, journal clubs and this came up in one of the journal clubs too and you know how can we start to establish and I think Kristen Jenke over at Boys Town has started to do this too the the newborn vestibular screenings and being able to catch these kids really young and get them into, you know, physical therapy, because that's usually what we see kids who have congenital, you know, hearing loss and vestibular disorders, they tend to lag behind on motor milestones. So they tend to crawl late, walk late. Um, they tend to have more problems with things like riding a bike, doing gymnastics. So getting them in physical therapy earlier to work on that muscle coordination and, you know, getting them, you know, more on target with those motor milestones is, is important but yeah and, and i see i see pediatric patients the youngest one i haven't done any of the newborns but the youngest one i've done was about 13 months so i've seen them pretty young um and you know it's it's really interesting testing that population and like i said when i was in school nobody nobody did that so right. you know, it was very <laughs> rare it, people did but it was pretty rare um you know and i and a lot of it was you know, in the U.S. Um, I have to give kudos to Violet Lavender, who uh, in in that's Ohio, who gave the talk. Who really? Oh yeah, Violet is amazing, and she really has talked about pediatric vestib for a long time. And you know, at Cincinnati Children's, they were doing it, but most other major pediatric hospitals were not. Um, Devin McCaslin and I did a talk for Cook Children's, and I think it was like 2015 talking to them about starting a vestibular program there. And I, I know they do it now there. Um, but it, I mean, 2015 is not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time, most, most children's hospitals didn't have it. So that is such a young component of vestibular um, that has really evolved over time and trying to, to establish what norms are for young kids and, and 
you know, really knowing what's going on with them and, and the pediatric disorders that are related to it. So, yeah, it's a, it's definitely an interesting place. And I, and I also tell my students, you know, before all the pediatric audiologists were like, okay, we have our blinders on and we have, you know, hearing loss, hearing aids, you know, cochlear implant. And now it's really expanded. So I talk to my students, I'm like, you know, if you want to do peds and have vestibular, you have really created a great niche for yourself. Yeah. You know, exactly. if you if you want those two specialties together, so um, yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting that area of of growth in our um, subspecialty. Yes, that uh, you explained it well. That was that was the study that I was referring to and the speaker that I was referring to. Um, but I agree. I think it's a, a it's just another testament to how young this whole field of science is, and I think it's exciting in that regard because it's like you know. It, it's to your point earlier about the jigsaw puzzle. I, I mean, that's a, a ter- I've heard a couple people just describe audiology in general like that. Um, it was, I think, Jill Davis that was describing it that way. And, and she was saying that, like, you know, kind of having this rounded experience of um, having at least a semblance of, of knowledge of every facet of audiology kind of helps you to piece together for some of these more complicated cases of what's going on. And um, I, again, I just think that, like, even if that's a small addressable market uh, for the like obscure uh, disorders, if you will, you're still branding yourself within your, whether it's your practice, the hospital, whoever in the community of like, you go here for anything, for anything that's related to this. If they can do something that, that is this extreme, then certainly they're a jack of all trades for every kind of ear related disorder. And so I think it's just kind of like, it bodes well for the way that you're being perceived by the community around you as, and I think that's really kind of like the task that audiology needs to rise to is how do, how does it almost rebrand itself as a whole to not just be immediately connotated with the, uh, the hearing aid doctor and the doctor and, and instead be one that is like for everything related to, you know, from amplification to inner ear disorders, um, that's, I think, kind of a tall order, but that's, I think, where the profession really needs to go. And and I hope, like, with AAA, you know, with some of the stuff that you're doing, and maybe this is a good segue of, like, you know, year 2024, we still haven't had MASA and the different iterations of it passed. Like, what's on the big agenda for for the organization and, and and what's the goal right now, you know, in terms of what does 2024 look like and what are your key goals that you want to communicate here? Yeah. So um, the Medicare Access Improvement Act, um, yeah, that's still on the agenda. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is a pressing issue. Um, you know, I think the downfall is, is the state of Congress um, and just everything that's, happening on Capitol Hill. But, you know, I, I think our, our goal is still that we need this direct access, that we need these patients to be able to come to us, um, you know, to have, you know, this reclassification as a practitioner, um, you know, without necessarily expanding our scope to just be recognized that we can do these things, we can do treatment, we can see these patients effectively, we can refer when it's necessary. Um, I, I, you know, that's, that's going to be a main goal. And that's one thing that all three major organizations have really, you know, come together on for the past several years of um, this one particular bill, because I will say like, before this, before it was Masa, now it's Maya, um, Mm -hmm. when all three organizations had different bills up on Capitol Hill, it was really crazy going up there because I, you know, I like going, I love advocacy and I love going up to Capitol Hill. And um, we do a trick with our students every year to go up to D.C. and have them advocate on top of on Capitol Hill. And, um, you know, you'd be up there and you would you would go to an office and they're like, OK, so is this the AAA bill? Is this the ASHA bill? Is this the ADA bill? And they're like, oh, but, you know, ASHA was just here last week. And, you know, and then yesterday ADA was here. And so it was just, and we were all asking for different things. It was like the, the epitome of the fragmentation of our yep. our profession that we sometimes see. So, you know, the fact that we're all on board with this one singular bill and, you know, that it's back in Congress, both in the Senate and in the House, 
you know, is a great thing. Um, you know, we're hoping that it can be, you know, um, approved, um, voted in the law. Um, you know, it, we're, we're, you know, the, I know. So being in AAA, the Academy staff has been, um, really looking to see, you know, what are some of the ways that it can get, you know, passed in both houses, in both the house and the Senate. And I, I'm sure that ASHA and ABA are looking at the same things and there is discussion amongst all three organizations, but that's definitely one thing that is still going to be pressing. It's just whether Congress can, can sort things out mm -hmm. there with the struggles that they're having. Totally. Yes. Okay. Well, that's, um, hopefully, you know, this will all pass under your tenure and, and you can hopefully <laughs> another fire in your cap. Um, so, you know, as we kind of come to the close here, um, <clears throat> wanted to just kind of get a sense from you, um, you know, in terms of what types of, um, you, you had mentioned, you know, some of the work that you're doing from a public health standpoint, which I think is also really interesting in light of the Achieve study, you know, and, and I think just like you, you see it on the news now, like all the time about, you know, first it was with OTC hearing aids, which however you feel it's exposure to the fact that there are, you know, more people becoming aware of like these things and these are different options, um, which surprisingly, you know, you looked at the, if you see the HIA, you know, numbers of the number of hearing aids that were sold this year, this was like a blockbuster year for the RX professional market, you know, the same year that the OTC hearing aids were released. So I think it's interesting that maybe as a weird byproduct, if you will, um, all that exposure actually led more people to go see a, a medical professional, um, which maybe that's kind of the way that this whole thing plays out is that you do have a do-it-yourself market, which is fine and that's great, but more people are encouraged then to come and see the professional and have the more um, prescription you know, experience. But I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts of what does, how does audiology from a public health standpoint make itself more aware or, or, or make itself more, I guess, well-received by its fellow medical professionals um, of its role here, of, of in the broader public health sphere of why hearing loss is something that needs to be taken seriously from a comorbidity standpoint, from an allied medical professional standpoint, um, I'm just curious to get your thoughts because I know that's another area that, that you do a lot of work is is on the public health side of things. Yeah, so I, um, I'm i in the middle of my MPH. I'll be done. Uh, my master's of public health. I'll be done in May. And it's been really an enjoyable experience, like learning things that are, you know, not audiology, but are audiology adjacent and applicable to audiology. And, you know, I, I have to say that overall public health had been creeping into the healthcare sphere as a whole. Um, you know, you never heard young people coming in, um, you know, because I'm the admissions chair, so I get to see everybody's, you know, admissions mm -hmm. packets and things like that. And you're you're seeing now more people talk about like social determinants of health and health disparities and health equity. And and those discussions weren't really happening that much. And, and I think that there's still somewhat fringe in audiology. Um, and I think that's where we need to really take a look at ourselves and see, you know, how, how, you know, is hearing care access um, part of, you know, health equity or is it not? And, you know, are people receiving the care that they should? And, and you know, OTC is, an, is a great example of, of a public health um you know, consideration. And so I, I always get nervous when people ask me about, I don't really get nervous, but, you know, I think it's also, you know, there's always this tenuous discussion about OTC and, um, you know, where it really fits in audiology. And, you know, you have the audiologists who are very concerned about, you know, their business and their, you know, livelihood. And that's an absolute concern. Mm -hmm. But when you look at, you know, health disparities and the people who can't afford that access to care, um, you know, how does that fit in? How are we how are we addressing the hearing needs of people who have these health disparities because of, you know, factors like race and socioeconomic status and, you know, all of these, you know, education level and all these other factors um, and them not being able to access that care because in many cases it can be not in an affordable price point. 
And I think that's going to be a struggle. And I think overall healthcare, and that's not just us, that's, you know, glasses, that's dental care, that's mm-hmm. a number of things. Um, and, but I think to start thinking about, you know, beyond ourselves. Um, and I think that's hard, you know, nobody wants to take a pay cut. Nobody, you know, everybody wants to be able to make sure that they can have food on their table for their family. They went to school and this is where that student loan debt comes in. You, you put in all this time, energy, student loan debt, you want to make sure that you can recoup that and make a living. But I do think we need to think about how audiology can be more accessible to, um, you know, those who are experiencing health inequities in in their daily life. And I think that that's going to be, you know, something that I, I think that the future generations of audiologists need to really consider. And so, you know, like I'm adding in to our curriculum here more about public health just because it's an area of interest of mine. But thinking about that, of, of you know, what are we able to do? Um, and, you know, with the OTCs, there's been this you know, positioning of those products where I think that, you know, they weren't rock bottom prices or the ones that are rock bottom prices are not stellar products. Right. So we start getting into kind of these higher level OTCs and then you compare that to cost of care with an audiologist. They tend to be, you know, not that far off. Right. So, you know, I think that that has somewhat helped, you know, with the growth of of hearing care with being provided by audiologists and products being provided by audiologists. But I do think we have to consider, you know, as a profession, you know, the the impact of um, health inequities amongst the, you know, the residents that live around us. For sure. And, you know, one of the, I think, most interesting, um, you know, opportunities, I guess, uh, with regard to this um, that I've come across on the podcast is, you know, like, one audiologist is only one audiologist. And well, what is the audiologist in essence? It's like a body of very specific institutional knowledge that was hard earned. And so I think that what's very encouraging is hearing about some of the ways that, um, you know, different audiologists are taking it upon themselves to sort of be the epicenter within their community and however you define that community. Um, to be the arbiter of that information and then disseminate it to other allied medical professionals. So I've heard some people talk about how, you know, there's like these programs where they're working side by side with an occupational therapist and with a physical therapist, um, you know, with geriatric care, um, working with, you know, in the more medical setting, working with the cardiologist, working with uh, the nephrologist, you know, working with some of these different people that they're not going to be the audiologist, but they're going to be an advocate for you. And they're going to be helping to make sure that that information is passed along. And I think that like one of the things I've really realized as I've been in this industry is the concerning lack of knowledge by the general medical population, like, you know, just basically anyone from a physician on that isn't fully aware of the full scope of the audiologist's role where they kind of come into this whole thing. And so I just find this to be interesting that like, it's, you know, I just think that from a public health standpoint, there's a lot there in terms of extending yourself so that, you know, you can solve the bandwidth issue by having these ways that you're extending all this information that you are the hub for. And it doesn't, I, I don't think that it diminishes the audiologists anyway, if anything, it dramatically elevates them because they become perceived in their community as the expert for all these different things. But that to me is like, um, like I had a Frank Wardinger on as a guest not long ago, and he was doing a program around, you know, his whole business is around hearing conservation. And one of the things he does on the side is this whole chaos thing. So he's training occupational therapists. He has trained over like, I think it's seven, 10 years. I can't remember how long he's trained like 10,000 KAOC certified occupational therapist. I could be getting these numbers wrong. It, it was, I need to go back and, and, and check the record, but it was something dramatically outsized like that. And, and that, those were the kinds of things where I'm like, when we talk about accessibility and how you can really only control what you can, you can't control what's going to happen on Capitol Hill. You can advocate for it and you can try to make a difference there, but you can do things sort of within your power. And those seem to be some of the things I've heard recently that give me a lot of like hope is like, 
man, if if every audiologist was able to sort of impart a, at least a level of that knowledge to say ten people, you just you just grew the workforce more or less by ten x in some capacity. Yeah, you know we are such a small profession compared to pretty much all the other you know big players. You know, PTOT speech you know, optometry, like we're really small. And, you know, you think about how many audiologists there are across the country that, you know, somewhere probably around 14, 15,000 people versus, you know, some of the other ones that are, you know, 200,000 right. know, providers. You know, there's only so much you can do as a singular individual seeing the patients that you see. And that's one of the things that I really like about public health because you're thinking about, you know, beyond the patient that's sitting in front of you. But yeah, the, the you know, the other professions know so little about us and, uh, you know, having those relationships. I know in the vestibular world, we work a lot with like PT and OT because of that, that nature. Um, you know, I have an interprofessional, we have a, an interprofessional fall prevention clinic. And, you know, I show up with some of my vestibular equipment and we're looking at eyeballs and optometry is like, why are you guys looking at eyeballs? We're mm -hmm. in optometry and we're like, well, we're looking at a different thing. We're looking at the VOR. We're not looking at, you know, visual acuity. And so it's an opportunity for them to learn, you know, like what we do versus what they do and, and guest lecturing for, for optometry as well. But, you know, it, it's funny. I, I, um, I, I took an advocacy class that was an elective in my MPH and, you know, professors, you know, all about health policy. And, you know, I talked about, you know, one of the projects I was talking about was the Maya, you know, the Medicare Audiologist Access Improvement Act and, um, you know, and why we did it. And, um, you know, I brought up something about hearing aids and they're like, well, you know, it's covered by hearing aids. And I'm like, no, no, Medicare doesn't cover hearing aids. And this is, and, and everybody was like, what? Right. Why? You know, and so even just basics like that, you know, people don't understand until they're in that position where they need Medicare or their family needs Medicare, mm -hmm. you know. And so, yeah, the we we definitely need those other professional, you know, connections to help, you know, help us, you know, help us understand, you know, where we can, you know, take things like so from a policy perspective, where can we go? We need that support of other professions um, and just really being aware of how small people are, uh, right. you know, and how many patients really are out there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, when you look at that, that PCAST report that came out that kind of was this catalyst towards OTC, you know, one of the issues was, you know, affordability. Um, but if you really look at that, it's really about access too, and and how few patients have access to you know, audiologists, either because of financial or because of just location, like rural aspects, mm -hmm. um, you know, and just how few audiologists there are. So it's, yeah, we, we have, we have a lot of opportunity to um, expand our reach through, you know, various different mechanisms between education of our colleagues, um, policy, um, all sorts of, of avenues that we can go down. We just yeah. need to, keep to, to think about it. I know. I mean, it's like, again, to just kind of like, you know, close the loop on this whole conversation. I think, you know, you have, um, I think audiology has such a incredibly, opp incredible opportunity here because think of the, think of the equation here and, and how much better off it is this way rather than the opposite, which is you don't, you have a shortage of labor, which is bad for the public, but it's good for you as the professional because there's a ton of demand and there is a lot of demand you have an aging population that's becoming more educated on the various roles that the audiologist plays and then you have all of this stuff that's happening now from a public health standpoint looking at the larger broader impact of you know what hearing loss ultimately might sort of be tied into and i think that you know just looking at the big picture here it's like it's never been more needed by more people and there's just not a lot of people that do it. And so I think that while it's concerning about, you know, the, you know, there's obviously a lot of concerns with the debt and as a young professional, like incurring all that. And I don't know how this all shakes out from a 
you know, from like a business standpoint in terms of where the revenue generation is going to come from in five years, 10 years from now. But I think it's undeniable that there is like this market demand for this kind of medical professional. And I think that it's got to be really exciting from that standpoint of like really in, in many, many ways, I don't think that audiology has like really come into its own. And it's exciting to think about what that would look like um, because I think it's just becoming more and more obvious of how important this specific type of medical professional is to the to the broader, you know, like healthcare ecosystem. I agree. And I think that um yeah, we we have we have a lot to work a lot of work to do, but I, I think you're right. I think, you know, you know, they're they're watching the profession kind of freak out a little bit about OTC, you know, leading up to <laughs> it and you know, the, this chicken little, the sky is falling. And I and I don't think that's the case. I think we have more opportunities, you know, to, to rethink how we can impact our patient. And, you know, the, the hearing aid is, is one small part of it. And I think going back to kind of everything we've talked about, you know, we have a lot of opportunity within our specialties and watching those specialties grow and being able to, you know, impact patients with hearing aids, with hearing care, um, tinnitus, auditory processing, cochlear implants, vestibular, like we have so much to offer um, and so much of what we need or what our patients need is being provided by us. We just need to, you know, make sure everybody knows that um, and, you know, that we're providing the highest level of care too, is that we're all, you know, on board with best practices and things like that. Couldn't agree more with you, Tish. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Where can people connect with you if they want to reach out and link up? So um, you can find me. So I am on LinkedIn if you want to find me there. Um, I think it's under Patricia Gaffney. Um, you know, you can find me if you just look at uh, the faculty at Nova Southeastern University. Um, I will become AAA president in 2024 in October. And, um, you know, if you want to come to the conference in Atlanta this year, um, I would highly recommend it. You can track me down there. I will be there. Um, <laughs> and actually, well, this year, just to kind of side note, um, we are bringing back Trivia Bowl. So if okay. any of you were around, um, 2014 was the last year of Trivia Bowl with Gus and Jerry. And um, I am bringing you back. I am hosting with Ryan McCreary. Nice. So, we are so that will be at the end of the week so uh you know to kind of have some fun before everybody goes home is it audiology specific trivia so we are doing a mix it's going to be um audiology trivia and some pop culture kind of mixed together cool so a little bit for everybody um and um we're we're excited to kind of revamp um you know the trivia the trivia bowl um from what it was (laughs) Any other, I, I should have given you more of an opportunity to talk about this coming AAA, which will be, you know, sort of under your purview. Anything else that you want to shout out about Atlanta and what, what we should expect? I'm looking forward to it. So, yeah. So uh, this will actually be Bokana Balachandra's year. I get to have New Orleans next year. But, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, but both great. But Atlanta, I think, is going to be great. It's, you know, it's an easy place to get to sometimes. The conferences can be in tough cities to to travel to, but Atlanta is such a huge hub that it should be easy to get to. Um, my favorites are always the grand round sessions. They're always, you know, really interesting to hear what cases are going on. Um, you know, last year they introduced some round table discussions. Um, those were actually really fun. I went to the vestibular one and, you know, got to talk with other vestibular colleagues from around the country and kind of seeing what everybody was doing. That was a new thing that was added last year that's going to happen again this year. Uh, and then the Friday night party, uh, which is a ticketed event, I think, is our, is going to be at World Coke. I'm really excited about that because I've never, the only time I've ever like really been to Atlanta was um, I was invited to speak at the Georgia Academy meeting and they had a snowstorm. And so everything was shut down. <laughs> so I didn't get really like sightsee, but I'm excited to go to World of Coke. I've never been. I've I've only been to Atlanta once as well, so I'm looking forward to it, Um, and I'm very much looking forward to New Orleans in 2025. Oh, I'm I'm very excited about New Orleans in 2025. I'll have to, you know, um, avoid talking uh, about that with AU because she still has PTSD from the 2020 uh, 
New Orleans show that was supposed to be, or it was supposed to be in New Orleans. It got canceled. The AAA that never was the one that she helped plan. So she she still has like a little PTSD anytime I I mention. I'll have New Orleans. <laughs> I'll have to do something special for AU in New Orleans that year. I love AU for sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, Tish, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, really enjoyed learning uh, from you and kind of getting a sense of what you're hearing on the front lines with, you know, at Nova, some of the career advice that you've given um, and, and just kind of where the profession is going. So thank you so much. Thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. We will chat with you next time. Cheers.